Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today we're joined by Betsy Brown, who is the founder and CEO of Pendleton Square Trust Company. We're going to talk a little bit about the story of Pendleton Square and Betsy's journey in founding it. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the estate planning environment and why Tennessee is such an interesting jurisdiction. Betsy, welcome aboard. Thank you, Fraser. It's great to be here and just wonderful to collaborate with you. Well, it's a lot of fun. A, watching your career develop, but also to be a part of what you're building down in Tennessee. Maybe talk a little bit about what you saw in the trust world that demanded in many ways a different experience for trust administration and a different way to think about dealing with wealthy people and their needs. I like to call it a listening tour. So I grew up in the traditional bank environment with basically very traditional services to families and really started observing and listening to these families of wanting a personal relationship with their trust officers, flexibility, checks and balances, the ability to work with multiple advisors. And so we really did see a fantastic opportunity in the marketplace. And I think it just came from families very frustrated with the traditional corporate trustee options. So we really set out on a journey and we studied numerous trust accounting platforms, administration technology platforms, and really interviewed families and investors to build what we call our dream independent trust company. This all started around October of 2015, so coming around five years, which is very impressive, and congratulations on making that happen. How did you sort of find Tennessee as the place to call home, and what makes that interesting? It is an interesting journey. So I hail from Tennessee, the great state of Tennessee, and it's the home of Dolly Parton, the Grand Ole Opry, Graceland, Jack Daniels, of course, Big Orange Country, the Great Smoky Mountains, and now Pendleton Square. So, Frazier, when we first met, I believe it was over 20 years ago, you were in law school and we were in our early 20s. As you knew, I'd grown up in Tennessee, but it was definitely in my rearview mirror. And so after living in Atlanta for a time in Virginia and brief stints in New York and D.C. and London, my husband and I decided to move home to Tennessee to raise our family. What I found was just such a unique environment. My eyes were open to the very progressive and very productive public-private partnerships that we found in Tennessee. It was so interesting and refreshing to find a very collaborative and supportive legislature, the regulatory body that governed banks and trust companies, and especially Commissioner Gonzalez, who leads the Tennessee Department of Financial Institutions, is very pro-business, welcoming, pro-family, and extremely collaborative. And something that also is very noteworthy is that our Tennessee Bankers Association has led and has been very instrumental in helping lead these progressive trust law changes over the years. So Tennessee is definitely a unique state. If you look into the U.S. News ranking of fiscal stability, Tennessee is ranked number one in terms of long-term fiscal health and has an outstanding AAA credit rating. So it is getting attention from the rest of the country and the rest of the world as being a very pro-business and a great place to live. 
with now our income taxes sunsetting at the beginning of next year. So Tennessee law and the framework for being progressive and business-friendly and, in a sense, client-friendly in place, the thing that strikes me as being impressive about the firm is the concept of the ability to deal with nuance and, at the same time, the attention to detail. And a lot of the frustrations that a lot of high net worth and ultra high net worth clients face is in dealing with institutions that aren't necessarily independent and then at the same time don't deal with their interactions with their other advisors with the right sense of interdependence. How did you take those sorts of concepts and integrate that into what you were trying to build? Well, and you're exactly right. I want to stress that we are an independent trust company and there are numerous definitions of that in the marketplace today. But our definition is that we are independent and we are not affiliated with other banks or financial institutions and solely focused on trust administration and estate administration. We do not manage any assets, so we're not conflicted in that area, and we do not draft documents. So truly, as a fiduciary, we're held to a very high standard as a regulated entity and a very high level of responsibility our model, in our view, is designed to avoid those conflicts of interest that families that you've described, they may be frustrated with some of the cross-selling or some of the conflicts that may arise of whether to distribute or some of the distribution policies within some of the larger financial institutions. And so what we've created is truly a natural system of checks and balances that should make grantors, trust makers, beneficiaries very comfortable with the model since we're not managing the assets or or really drafting the estate planning documents we are in a great position to just execute on the plan and serve the family and in addition something that i saw was that there was lack of transparency in the market and so what we've created is a very simple fee structure that is transparent and very easy to communicate with our beneficiaries and trust makers. One of the things that I've noticed in the industry that's tough to get my arms around or to sort of fix in many ways is the fact that trust administration and the idea of supporting family offices and the like is very rarely a core business for the big institutions. And as a result, you get a situation where if it's not a core business, it's an accommodation for other clients in the furtherance of other sort of different types of business. And this seems to be something where you've decided that by being a best-in-class provider, you can remove some of those concepts and frustrations for those types of clients. Yeah, it's interesting. I've even heard it being called a cost center within some of the larger institutions because it's just a service they really have to provide their clients by default. So some of the families or business investors thought we were crazy when we were solely wanting to focus on trust administration. They were wondering, how can we make this model work? But what we recognized as a growing need, trusts were not only being structured for tax reasons or for other mechanics like they were 20 or 30 years ago. They were really being structured for protection and for family dynamics and for the future. And so we did see a growing need for independent trust companies like Pendleton Square. Something that's so interesting is that we talk about our independence, but a very important concept in our business is interdependence. We think it's a very important concept in our business because we are truly connected with our partners. We are interdependent with the network surrounding the family or the family office. And so whether that's the 
people, financial advisors, asset managers, estate planning attorneys, the family CPAs, insurance specialists. We are in constant contact with those partners, and it's very important behind the scenes for us to be collaborative and to be creating new ideas and concepts to bring the family, to bring that best-in-class thinking. And it's really important that we're not affiliated. We're really operating independently, but it's really up to the partners to communicate and to try to connect and bring best-in-class service to those families. So you identified a hole in the market, in a sense, or a need that a lot of families, family offices, foundations, institutions probably wished were better, and you're trying to fill it. Maybe talk a little bit about your personal background, too, because I think that's interesting, especially coming from the capital markets world. Many times the idea of trust companies, they're formed out of offshoots of law firms or other areas. You came out of it from a different point of view. So it is interesting, and I cannot believe that I'm approaching my 25th year in the financial services sector. So I think that makes us old, Fraser. No comment. <laughs> exactly. So as I mentioned before, I grew up in that traditional big bank environment, and I'm very thankful for that strong credit and analysis background that was really from a traditional bank training program, which is invaluable. So then I spent 10 years in the debt capital markets world, a very transaction-driven business. But one of my mentors who I worked closely with in that business continued to tell me, you really need to transition to a relationship business. That's more of your personality. He kept counseling me to make the change and to try to find something that was focused on building relationships. And so he really encouraged me to transition to the private wealth world. And what comes with that is the trust business. So really focused on that for the next 10 years. So really reflecting back on that, I really think that I've tried to understand what my gifts are to deliver to my clients or my families we're serving. And I really think that after being part of a trustee or executor team over multiple years, those gifts are really discernment and service and the gift of administration and just helping explain complex concepts to a widow or to a young third-generation individual trying to understand family dynamics. And so I think that the team that we're building and what I'm trying to leave a legacy for is really focused on deepening relationships with individuals and establishing partnerships with advisors and then just serving and helping others. That's truly our calling. So talk a little bit about the team building. You've got the idea, you've diagnosed that the market needs it, you've got the background, and ultimately you have to form the team in order to push this forward. How did you identify the people that you were going to work with, and how did you get started on that process? Well, it's so interesting. My husband always says, never say I. He always says we. It's truly a team. So my partner, Derek Church, who is truly my co-partner in this venture, he's based in Nashville, is truly a genius. So he is an attorney and he oversees all the regulatory compliance and operation side of the business. So we kind of call ourselves the yin and yang of the business because we truly have different gifts. And then next is our board and our investors. They believed in us. They supported us with capital. They believed in the plan and they're helping us build this best in class independent trust company. And then truly our first 15 employees, our trust officers and team members that we're really trying to develop 
they're serving our families every day and really building efficient processes. They're very proactive in the business. And so I think that's just an important part that it is a we process. It's truly a team. So speaking of the we part of it, I know that a big passion of yours is the idea of being a part of the entrepreneurial success of the women in, around Chattanooga and Tennessee and a lot of the different groups that are in play there, particularly the Jump Fund. And what role did they play in helping you sort of get the resources together and at the same time just help you believe that you could do it? It's interesting. One of my kind of lifetime mantras or quests is to surround myself with very passionate and interesting people. And Fraser, I think that's how I initially met you. So way back in the day, some great Atlanta memories. So the Jump Fund came about really from just a really passionate group of dynamic women whom I met in 2013. And I truly think they are problem solvers and they came to the table with very diverse perspectives and backgrounds. They had grown up in different parts of the country and we just noticed something. And that was that we had been going to several of these investment kind of conferences and there were no women on the stage. And we recognized there was lack of capital available for female entrepreneurs in the South. And at that time, there's less than 3% of venture capital in the Southeast was being allocated to female-led growth ventures. And so we were perplexed. We said, why is this? We need to change this dynamic. There are very smart women establishing and growing businesses, but it was they were not high-growth ventures. And how could we put talent together with very diverse teams and make that happen? So really, instead of starting another nonprofit, which seems to be the case through a nonprofit at an issue, we knew at the end of the day, capital is king. So we decided to form, to jump in and form the Jump Fund. And it is an angel investment fund that is very focused on really building and investing in female entrepreneurs in the South. And so it's very geographically region driven with scalable high-growth companies. And so we set out with our first fund to raise money from all women to invest in women. And so coming about it with background from the investment side, it was very interesting. And also from an education side, I saw multiple generations of women getting very interested in this because you really can't teach them about the stock market. Their eyes kind of glaze over, but you can teach them about a life science company or a consumer product company or an internet company that's going to protect the internet for their children. And so there are concepts that they were like, well, we want to learn about valuations and term sheets and series A offerings. And so we also found it as an opportunity to educate and to teach women about angel investing and in turn to get them interested in investing in general. In the midst of that, the ability to tap into a bunch of different experiences from the people you're associating with and then ultimately investing with, that's got to be invaluable as Pendleton Square continues to grow. Well, exactly. I was watching the female entrepreneurs we were investing in and watching them succeed and fail and try harder and celebrate. And it just gave me courage. I said, I need to do something. And at the time, I've connected with an old friend in Nashville and she was interested in this business and the trust business and building out of a family office background. And so 
I just really decided after watching these entrepreneurs over a two-year period with the Jump Fund that it really gave me the confidence and the courage to go out and raise money and to join with this old friend and really get into the game. And so I think that it definitely encouraged me and gave me kind of the tenets of how to raise capital. Our business is very different than a high-growth scalable company. We're a, a very patient, slower growth, but long-term from a succession planning standpoint, because our families and clients want us to be there for multiple generations. And so the way we've designed ourselves is we're owned by families. And so succession is a very big question when we're talking to families. They want to look me in the eye and say, Pendleton Square is going to be there for two or future generations, two or three more generations. So they want to know that we are there and will continue to be independent. And it's an important factor from that perspective. One of the interesting things about what you associate with in your sort of side hobbies here is the concept of storytelling. And you've got an interesting group that you work with called Telling Treasures. Maybe go into that a little bit. And what lessons can you take from that that translate well into the multi-generational wealth world? Well, what's interesting is that out of the working with families every day through life events, whether it be a liquidity event or a death in the family, it's always very stressful times with families. And so we really try to walk alongside them. And so we're taking away experiences from those life events, but you can prepare for, for some of those. And so in our everyday conversations with families, we feel like that we're helping them weave their own tapestry and legacy. So legacy planning has always been a passion of mine. And the stories that we remember are very telling because they reveal what you and your family value most. And so several years ago with a longtime friend, she's a teacher and a writer, we created an initiative called Telling Treasures. And as we know in our business, Fraser, you've seen this a lot, family relationships are sometimes very difficult and even more stressful when you add wealth on top of it. So we like to say that we have kind of on-the-job psychology or counseling degrees, and that comes in very handy because we know that preparing, preparation and family education is very vital to when we reach those life transitions. And so for a transition to be successful, we need to have that education component. And sometimes storytelling and family stories are very important to that mix. And so that was our mission to go out and create a way to really help get families kind of give them the tools to capture stories, write legacy letters, write ethical wills in order to just kind of thicken up their estate planning file. It is very important. And one of my favorite authors in our sector is Jim Stovall, and he wrote The Ultimate Gift, and he's a fantastic speaker. But one of his great quotes is, it is critical that people pass along their values before they pass along their valuables giving future generations resources without an emotional and informational foundation is like giving them a loaded weapon without instruction or caution. So we think that giving them some type of family education, stories, values, kind of moral compass that comes with that is extremely important. And so what we created in a workshop is this guidebook that equips the families and helps them. Procrastination is the biggest enemy in this business, in the kind of legacy letter storytelling sector. And so giving them tools to make it easy because you can sit down at the table or at the computer with a blank screen, but it's very difficult to 
prioritize that and say procrastination is our enemy. And one of the things that I've noticed in my experience in the field is that the lack of communication or the inability to communicate is really the biggest threat to the wealth. More often than not, the investments, there's plenty of expertise around that. Many people are extremely well advised. But if people in the families themselves don't know how to communicate or don't have a similar context from which to work from in understanding why the estate plans are in place, that's what leads to conflict and unfortunately, usually expensive litigation or the type of bruised feelings that makes people unable to communicate when it really matters going forward. Sounds like this is something that at least is one of the tools that we use to sort of address what can happen or at least address the common stories that people have within the development of their wealth. Well, and especially communication is a key factor. And two or three generations ago, the families did not want to communicate anything to the family about size of wealth or any details. And so when someone passed away in the family, it was almost chaotic because they didn't have a good understanding of the different complexities of the family business or the asset mix. And so we are trying to, through different tools, letters of wishes, letters of instructions to give a little bit more kind of guidance a will or a trust is just a structure or instructions to pass along assets. And of course, the financial assets are the tools to accomplish your goals during your life. But these stories, the values you extract from the stories, traditions, family experiences, family meetings, become that heart and soul of the family. And so if we can encourage families to have regular family meetings or family vacations where they do have some structured meeting, that is very valuable when it comes to communication to kind of put some type of governance and it can be any size family, any net worth family, but just have some type of communication and governance plan for the family is vital. For those families that are just coming into wealth or maybe going from one type of wealth to another, i.e. they're selling a business or they've inherited or someone has just gotten their first round draft choice contract signed, what are the things that you would advise clients or soon-to-be clients to think about in sort of staffing their team, i.e. lawyers, accountants, et cetera, but also choosing the people that are going to help them be the structure around their wealth? So I think that as families are evaluating trustees, I always encourage them to really look at the service component. How are you currently being served by your bank, your financial advisor, anyone? potentially in a trustee role. Sometimes it's first-generation wealth. Let's look at, ask the question, does the individual have the resources to fulfill the duties as a trustee? Is my family going to be lost within the big bank structure as a corporate trustee? And then look at this independent option. So there aren't that many options in the world of trustees. It's an individual family member, professional individual as well, attorney or CPA. It is the big bank corporate trust company. And then it's this blended model that we have created with Pendleton Square as the independent trustee. So that's kind of the service model and how will my family connect with the trustee in the future. The second is CITUS. We've talked a little bit about Tennessee, but the current CITUS, well, is it flexible? Does it provide protection? Are there tax advantages for particular CITUS choices or jurisdictions? If it's a current trust, we obviously look at changing that principal place of administration or that situs and what benefits it may deliver to the family. 
And then the third is succession. So when my family is going through this transition, is there someone personally dedicated to my family that I've gotten to know over the years that is going to be there and listen and educate and be very patient and willing to provide the level of service that I'd like them to have during this transition? So I like to call it kind of the service, situs, and succession analysis. Interesting. Now, for those people with wealth that's been around for a while, and maybe they've had relationships built over time, maybe situs in places other than Tennessee, but there are currently issues, whether there's turnover, whether that focus of the institution is starting to waver, whether there are different advantages that Tennessee might have over their current jurisdiction. Maybe talk us through a little bit about how that would work if the idea of moving a trust from one jurisdiction to another and then having Pendleton be a part of that, how that would work. So one example that I would share is a family that we transitioned several years ago based in New York. They had funded a family trust in November of 2012. So let's go back to 2012 and remember how busy we were during that quarter when we had very similar dynamics that we have now. Chaos. (laughs) So they chose Delaware as a jurisdiction. And really, I think their attorney had just recommended a Delaware trust company without a lot of thought and discussion regarding the three tenant service, situs, and succession. So over the years, they were a little bit frustrated with their responsiveness, the ability to report around this complex web of funds and investments. They needed consolidation and oversight reporting and actually to talk to a live person and get a statement. And so their investment advisor linked us with the family. And it was a very simple review. We reviewed the governing document. We worked with the estate planning attorney. We looked at the tax implications. We wanted to maintain the asset protection that had been established. And so we were able to simply accomplish this transition with a non-judicial settlement agreement and the notice of change of situs. And so behind the scenes, we were kind of aimed to have a hassle-free transition. And so that was a very, after review of the document and the statements, we were able to provide a transition proposal to the family to make the decisions. And then we were able to, within two or three weeks, transition the trust. Oh, that's a terrific tool to have. And I think it's much less complicated than many would think about in sort of figuring something like that out. I think the normal prejudice would be, oh, we've got to go to court. It's going to take months and months and months and months and months and could be conflict oriented. But it sounds like given the right circumstance, it can be something that can be turned around quickly and to the benefit of everybody. It is interesting. My husband laughs. He says, Betsy, you've never met a trust you can't move. So I can always find hopefully a seamless transition process. So we alluded to a little bit the chaos of working back in 2012, which involved a variety of different deadlines for the tools that we were using in the estate planning world. And 2020 is starting to look very similar. There are very low interest rates. There are somewhat volatile and low asset valuations for certain assets. And then we have an election coming up that looks like it could really either curtail or eliminate many of the tools we use in the estate planning world to help people sort of effectuate their goals in as tax efficient a way as possible. In the meantime, what is coming across your desk in terms of strategies that are popular right now or that are things that many attorneys are suggesting to their clients? 
It is such an interesting time, and we anticipate the next several months to be very busy in really evaluation and analysis. And we're really encouraging families just to be ready. You can go ahead and go through the process. You don't have to fund or execute until the end of the year, but go through the evaluation process. It's a great time to just update general documents and obviously analyzing the cash flow of any type of gifting strategies is really important. It's so hard to generalize because we're working with different net worths and different types of families in terms of assets. And so we really do encourage families to connect soon after Labor Day with their estate planning attorneys and discuss these gifting strategies. But really the three main strategies that we've seen cross our desk recently that attorneys are sending for our review is the general direct gift to an irrevocable trust to benefit a child in the future. The next strategy is that SLAT, the Spousal Limited Access Trust, which is somewhat a strategy that gives a little bit more control and confidence that you're going to have resources for the rest of your life if your spouse has access to those resources. And then the third is the installment sale to an irrevocable grantor trust. And we are seeing some charitable trust plays as well. So it's important if you're working with a family or if you're a family that's charitably inclined to evaluate those as well. With the low interest rate environment, there are some great strategies around that, as well as intra-family loans. We are structuring some loans from trusts currently that instead of distributions we're doing in certain specific situations, it does make sense to borrow from trusts or structure intra-family loans. I was going to say, that's one of those tools that I don't think gets enough publicity. The intrafamily loan, given where rates are and the way you can structure them, even in the medium and long term, they can be very powerful and at the same time, very simple. And if there's wealth that's housed in various trusts, those loans can be extremely interesting and just providing a little bit more flexibility than may have been understood before. To that end, I think that we're going to have different discussions around the different benefits of Tennessee, so we don't have to exhaust that completely. But just in a quick bullet point form, what are a couple of things that locating your wealth in Tennessee can do to help families or that are otherwise advantageous over certain jurisdictions? Fraser, over the last two decades, Tennessee has been very progressive and has created a very attractive trust and tax environment. And I guess that the cornerstone of that is the no income tax for out-of-state beneficiaries. And then in 2021, we truly will be a no income tax state. And so on top of that, and it seems looking back, the state had a two-part strategy. And The first was obviously provide additional flexibility for Tennessee residents, and a lot of the practitioners that took these ideas for new legislation were really trying to help their clients, and so adding the flexibility for Tennessee residents. The second part of that was to attract out-of-state families, international families, to maintain trust in Tennessee and to really grow Tennessee as a financial hub in the Southeast. And I think you've seen some of that with attention from New York firms moving teams and headquarters to Nashville and just some of the attractive platform that they've created. I would love to share a timeline. Really what's happened over the last 20 years is the adoption of the Uniform Trust Code, Asset Protection Trust, Community Property Trust, 
the addition of trust protectors, extension of rule against perpetuities, and then most recently the adoption of the special purpose entity as protectors or advisors. So it is a timeline. I think every year or every two years, there's something new, a progressive adoption that happens to make the state even more attractive. And as I mentioned earlier, it's a great private-public partnership that you see happening within the state. So before we wind up here, just tell us a little bit about what the trajectory of the firm has looked like over the first five years. I mean, basically starting from zero, it's now administering, I think, close to $1.5 billion and going north quickly. So that's right. So Pendleton Square has grown extremely fast, and I think it's really been the great support we have from our board and our investors. The story of independence really resonates with our financial advisor partners. And what we're trying to build is just a jewel of a trust company that services families and is focused on client experience. And so I think that's exciting. We're thankful to be based in Tennessee, which is extremely attractive. One of my favorite fun facts about Tennessee is that the name is derived from an old Yuchi Indian word that means meeting place. And I like to think that in our very super connected world, that Tennessee will become a meeting place for families. So families can come and learn about their families and communicate and have great service from trust providers. And along the way, of course, we'll share our Southern hospitality great music, food, and spirits. So excited about what Tennessee has to offer as a jurisdiction, and especially that Pendleton Square is able to grow and collaborate in this great business environment. Terrific. Hearing the story of how the firm started and the development of your expertise over time, it's been really cool to watch from afar and now from up close. So that's really fun to do. In the meantime, before we head out here, just a couple of fun facts from you. Maybe tell us a little bit about your big influences growing up. It's interesting, but I was raised by truly an entrepreneur. And my mother was a female entrepreneur back in the day. And she started a small business when I was five and grew it for 30 years. And I would work weekends and holidays. And it was in this retail environment that I re truly learned about serving clients and employees and the value of community. Her motto, of course, to this day is the customer is always right. And she continues to remind me that as we're working with families and just trying to solve problems and help them accomplish their goals. And then on the other side, my father was an early adopter of the power of positivity. So he woke me up every morning and wrote me notes in college with quotes from Winston Churchill, who was his favorite. A famous one was never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. And then, of course, he was a motivational speaker as he was kind of in the human resources sector. And Zig Ziglar was a favorite. So he would always continue to quote and he would even pop tapes into our tape player with motivational see you at the top messages. So to him, attitude was everything. He was extremely involved in the community and he was also involved in the early stages of what we call now the Chattanooga Renaissance, being on several community boards. So I like to think that I'm following in his footsteps as a community contributor, serving on the boards that he served on before me. So what's also interesting is that my husband is in the business and he's helped us create and grow this business. And 
So I'm very thankful for that as we're raising three young children. Faith and family are extremely important and are inspirations to me. And the reason why we moved home to Tennessee was that we had a very large extended family and our children are blessed with 16 cousins in their generation. So family means so much to us. And I think that it's important every day, every step I take is professionally and personally, families matter to us. And so that's what we're trying to drive, that communication level and that harmony amongst families every day in what we built with Pendleton Square. Really, really cool. I am going to put up some links to the Jump Fund and Telling Treasures and to some of the other things that you're involved with, including Pendleton Square. But how else do we follow your exploits and how can people get in touch with you? Well, my email is bbrown, B-R-O-W-N, at pendletonsquaretrust.com. And we'll have other additional information on your website. Terrific. Betsy, thanks so much. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Great to work with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.